the book of the Bible that is most read by people? I wonder what you might think that would be. Maybe book of Revelation? Maybe one of the four Gospels? It is the book of Psalms. More than Matthew, more than Mark, more than Luke, more than John. More than the book of Revelation. More than the book of Genesis, book number one. The book of Psalms is the most read book in the Bible. For some Christians in history and in the present day, the book of Psalms, they would call it their favorite book. They've read it countless times. It's been a source of tremendous comfort to their hearts. They have been encouraged in times of blessing. They have been sustained in times of distress. John Calvin once said that the book of Psalms is the anatomy of the soul. What Calvin means by that, he goes to explain there's not an emotion of which anyone can be conscious in themselves that's not represented in the Psalms. So it's as if we were seeing an anatomy of the human soul drawn out across these 150 Psalms. Reading words about trusting the Lord can help us trust the Lord. Reading psalms about hoping in God can help us hope in God. We need the psalms because God uses these songs to pierce to the very depths of who we are. The very word psalm means song. Think of the book of psalms as a hymn book tucked within the Old Testament. There is a book within the Holy Scripture with 150 hymns because there's a lot to sing about. There are a lot of circumstances to call upon the God of heaven and earth in. Some things don't just need to be said, they need to be sung. If you go to a championship ball game or you go to somebody's wedding or you attend a birthday party, chances are there will be singing of some kind. Because singing helps us express emotion. Are you thankful, confused, celebratory, feeling sentimental? Well, you and I know there are songs for all of those kinds of things. If you're looking for music to help you sleep or exercise or study, there are songs for those kinds of things. We are naturally inclined to music. Music, singing, is a gift of God to his image bearers. We should not be surprised, therefore, that the people of God have in the Bible a hymn book. 150 songs. The early church treasured the psalms. Luther himself called the book of Psalms a mini-Bible. Because Luther recognized what the early church treasured so profoundly. The book of Psalms teaches us. Teaches us about mankind. Teaches us about God himself. About God's dealings with the history of Israel. It talks about wickedness and righteousness. A path of wisdom. The warning of judgment. We learn about covenant and promises. We learn about God's faithfulness. We even learn in the Psalms about the life of the one who would come from the line of David, the king who would be Christ Jesus himself. The Psalms teach us. That's the power of music and lyrics. They have a formative, catechetical, educative role. They instruct, they shape, they direct. The Psalms are inspired hymns. Here are hymns given to us in the inerrant, authoritative, inspired word of God, and we would be wise to study what they say. The New Testament authors know the importance of this book. The book of Psalms 
is the Old Testament book that the New Testament writers quote the most. And you might say, well, it's quite big, right? Well, listen, the New Testament's 27 books. And the book of Psalms is used in the Gospels, in the book of Acts, throughout the letters, and in the book of Revelation. What I want to do this morning is look together at Psalm 1, which begins not only the book of Psalms, but a section within the book. Think of the book of Psalms as having smaller books within it. Lowercase b. Little books, book 1, book 2, book 3, book 4, book 5. The book of Psalms as a whole has five sections, and they are not evenly distributed psalms throughout each of these sections. Book 1 is Psalms 1 to 41. And this morning, we're going to look at the introduction to this book, lowercase b. And we're going to see that not only does this introduce book 1 of the psalms, this is the gateway. Gateway requires me to make one other comment, not just about Psalm 1, but about the pair of psalms that open this grand musical hymn book. Psalms 1 and 2 go together. We're going to look at Psalm 2 next week, but I do want you to understand that Psalm 1 is not the only way to think of an entrance into the book. Psalms 1 and 2 go together, and they form pillars of this gateway. If we approach the book of Psalms, we go through the two mighty pillars on either side, Psalms 1 and 2. They're meaningful in and of themselves, but they're also helpful as a thematic directing pair of psalms for the remainder of what we study. Now in Psalm 1, we are going to focus upon a blessed man. A blessed man whom we are told doesn't do certain things, and he does do others. What is, what is this blessed man blessed for and unto? We're talking here about a way of life that leads to life, whereas the path and way of the wicked leads to judgment. We're immediately reminded that in Psalm 1, we might as well find ourselves in a Proverbs way of thinking. Wise and fool, way of the righteous, way of the wicked, very much like what we notice in the book of Proverbs. But the way of the righteous occupies only verses 1 to 3 here. Verses 4 to 6, the way of the wicked. So we look at this psalm in two parts. The way of the righteous, verses 1 to 3. The first word of book 1 and of the whole book of Psalms is the word blessed. And I love this word. It's a used word, certainly in our terminology. We might think to ourselves from time to time, I'm so blessed. I'm blessed because I've experienced this. Or I'm blessed because I have this. Or I'm blessed because I have the opportunity for this. The word blessed or blessing is used in our own terminology. But the word blessing first occurs in Genesis 1. And Psalm 1 is rooted in the first chapter of the Bible. God pronounces blessing over his creation because his creation is directed to a particular state of wholeness, vibrancy, life that is truly life. And the word blessing in Psalm 1 has that kind of picture. It's not about all the circumstances have aligned as I would like them. And so because my circumstances are so great, oh, I'm so blessed. This is about a psalmist who has become a certain kind of person in knowing God and in being blessed has entered into a kind of life that is truly life. It's what the Old Testament writers would call shalom or a place or condition of peace, vibrancy and vitality of the soul. And I think we get these indications in the text. In verse 2, the person's delight is in the law of Yahweh. 
In verse 3, this person is compared to a flourishing and fruitful tree. In verses 5 and 6, tell us the wicked will perish, but the righteous would therefore stand before God. This man is blessed chiefly and above all else because of his state before God. He knows God. His delight is in God's word. He is blessed by God with life that is truly life. We should think of blessing in those terms. And we discover in Psalm 1, there is a path to blessing and there is a path to judgment. And we know this contrast is present because of the ending of the psalm. We see that the wicked will be judged in Psalm 1. And the righteous, by implication, will stand before the Lord, whereas the wicked won't. This uh, blessed man, then, is not like the wicked. And what characterizes him is what he does and does not do. Verse 1 begins with what he doesn't do. This man's life is characterized by avoiding things and pursuing things. Verse 1 tells us what he doesn't do. Verse 2 tells us what he is committed to in his heart. Now these groups we're going to read about in verse 1, the wicked, the sinners, the scoffers, these are all terms parallel referring to rebels against the Lord. Because you might say, well surely uh, someone who delights in the law of God might himself indeed be a sinner. But that's not as broad uh, as a meaning that this term sinner is used as in verse 1. Wicked and sinners and scoffers are all being used in a very specific sense of rebels against the Lord. They are on a path of unrighteousness. They are the wicked and they are facing the judgment of God that is to come. Here's what we're told about this man. He walks not in the counsel of the wicked. The word counsel is about guidance or instruction. If you were facing a situation and you thought, I need some input from someone, here's what's going on, here are my questions, give me some counsel. Uh, The word counsel in that way of thinking is about guidance or wisdom. You're looking for some input, some words to direct you. You want to factor that in and process it. The counsel of the wicked, therefore, must involve words that inform and guide someone in unrighteousness. The words of the wicked have a discipling effect, and that's disturbing. The counsel of the wicked shapes and influences, guides and directs. We are all being discipled by what we are listening to. And he says, blessed is the man who does not walk according to the counsel of the wicked. They would love to direct him. They have words to say. They have instruction to give him as answers to his questions and things for him to occupy himself with and prioritize. Blessed is the man who does not walk according to the counsel of the wicked. Think of the many griefs that have come upon the lives of folks we know because of who they were listening to. The counsel of the wicked that is internalized Blessed is the man who does not walk according to their counsel. Which means when they say, you should go this way, he doesn't listen to their counsel. He doesn't walk according to their direction. The image is given next of standing. Blessed is the man who does not stand in the way of sinners. A possible misunderstanding here would be thinking of standing in the way as in blocking someone like being an obstacle in their path. Well, here's someone sinning. I want to be in the way of sinners because I want to direct them in uh, in the way of life. 
That's not what standing in the way of sinners means here. Standing in the way involves thinking of way as a metaphor for one's life or path, and standing is you being on that path with them. That your desires and your agenda, your vision for life, conforms to the way of the wicked. Blessed is the man who doesn't stand in the way of sinners. Their path is not his path. The blessed man's path is the narrow way, the one of knowing God and following God, rejecting the wicked's counsel. Look at this third description. It tells us here, blessed is the man who does not sit in the seat of scoffers. Just as the man says, their way is not the way I am going, the blessed man knows that their words are not my words. The scoffer is someone who doesn't just stand, but is pictured here in a seat, looking, observing, mocking. That's what it is to scoff. It's to speak in a derisive way, a negative way, to mock with revelry and unrighteousness in their own lives of rebellion. It tells us here there's a seat waiting for this man with the scoffers, and he refuses the seat. Blessed is the man who does not sit with the scoffers. He does not want to join their fellowship. Because you see, sitting is a picture of sharing the table with and fellowship with. To join together with. These scoffers, these mockers, would love for him to join what they're about. That their way of thinking about the world and their way of living would become his way of living. And blessed is the man who doesn't sit with them. He would rather have a seat at the table of the Lord and with the people of the Lord. This man is blessed because of where he doesn't sit. Notice something about these verbs. Walking, standing, sitting. Let's imagine there was a chair open for you and you had to walk and then as you arrived, you were standing, and then you take your seat. Now, Old Testament commentators have sometimes suggested a possible movement intended by these verbs, and I think this is right. It suggests an increasing resolve, because somebody who finds himself walking according to the counsel of the wicked will find himself standing before long on their path. And someone who listens to the counsel of the wicked and imitates their path will find himself at their table taking the seat with them, speaking words of derision and mockery. Walking, standing, sitting. Before long, this person would be adopting the way of speaking as the wicked because he started out listening to them. So the words of the wicked go in his ear and eventually the words of the wicked come out of his mouth. How did it all begin? Where they begin to listen. Starting out listening to wicked words. And blessed is the man who doesn't walk according to the counsel of the wicked. So I think Psalm 1 is very helpful here to clarify truth over against some delusions that image bearers might have. Somebody might think, well, you know what? My closest friends in life that I share the deepest fellowship with, they can be people who don't fear the Lord. And it won't affect me. It's not going to influence me. I'll be just fine. Their counsel and their deep fellowship, we're going to share and bond souls together. And even though they do not fear and follow the Lord Jesus Christ, I don't see why that could turn out bad for me at all. Or somebody who says, listen, I can, I can date somebody who doesn't love the Lord. I can date someone who doesn't follow Christ and everything is going to be fine. In fact, I'll influence them. They won't influence me. 
But we are not the exception to the Bible's wisdom. We should choose friends whose future we want to share. And here, by the time Psalm 1 ends, we recognize the sheer danger that the sinners, the wicked, and these rebels are on. How can we avoid sitting with the scoffers against the things of the Lord? It starts with what we are listening to. Your life will be directed by what you listen to. That's why verse 2 is so important. We have learned what the blessed man doesn't do. What does he do? Verse 2, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. The word law is the word Torah. It's a word meaning instruction. Instruction to give direction in the path of wisdom and life. Well, he loves that. He doesn't have a neutral stance toward the Bible. He delights in the law of the Lord. The man delights in the law of God. He meditates day and night. This is picturing a life directed by words of truth and goodness and beauty found in the Holy Scriptures. This word delight is an internal word, isn't it? Delight is a disposition towards something. Something that goes deep. It's a heart response. This is a man who tastes the goodness of the Lord in the revelation of the Lord. In the scriptures. They have an occupying role in his mind. His delight is in the law of the Lord. On his law he meditates day and night. I just want to suggest to you. That you will think about what you delight in. And this man's delight is in the law of the Lord. And one of the ways it is shown to be his delight. Is what an occupying role and influence. It has in his thinking. For this person. Scripture is not something that is optional and extracurricular, peripheral. This verse is talking about intake, about contemplation about the Word of God, thinking over what he is reading. For this person, Scripture is not something that would be relegated just to Sunday activities, set apart just for emergencies. Rather, the truth and goodness of the Word of God is so clear to this man and his need for the Scripture so pronounced in his heart that he delights in the Word of God because he knows what it is. Delighting in Scripture and meditation on Scripture are mutually feeding experiences. Sometimes the word meditation could easily throw readers for a loop because when we hear meditation more broadly in our culture... We might think of Eastern practices where meditation is about emptying the mind. That's not what this word means. This idea of meditation is to fill the mind, not empty it, fill the mind with the truth of God's word and to think about it. This is to ponder and reflect on the Holy Scriptures. You will think about what delights you. And you will find yourself over and over again through the discipline of directing your thoughts toward the Scriptures, stirring in you a delight that wasn't previously there. It's not a well-kept secret at all that the secret to delight in your Bible reading is meditation. A hasty, distracted reading of Scripture does not produce delight in the soul. I think an immediate takeaway here is that we must be people serious about the Scriptures. Owning a Bible is good. Opening one is even better. Meditating upon the scriptures is the model of Psalm 1. 
to open the Word of God and to read and to think about what we are reading, to pray in light of what we are reading, we might resist the idea of meditation initially because we might think, well, I don't really have time to meditate on the Scriptures. Well, it's certainly true that living a hurried life drains spiritual vitality. We must nourish our souls in an unhurried way before the Word of God. Think of someone who said, well, I don't really have time to eat. Well, let's see how many days passes before you realize you need to make time for this. How much more important the state of our souls before God and the importance of nourishing the very depths of who we are by truth and wisdom from God. We might resist meditation because we might not really believe the Bible is what it says it is. The word of the living God, authoritative and inspired, without error in all that it teaches... So that we might be directed in wisdom in life under the salvation that God himself has provided in his son. If someone says, yeah, I don't really think the Bible is that. Well, then they might have a very understandable resistance to it. They might not meditate because they don't really think God will do what he says he will do in the scriptures. And the problem in those cases is one of trust. We come to meditate upon the scriptures we read because I believe what God says And I don't want to trust the cultural lies and even the ever-changing feelings within our own souls. Corey Tin Boom once said that if the devil can't make you sin, he will make you busy. Because we can convince ourselves the reason that we don't read and meditate on Scripture is because we just don't have time. You know how I know that's not really true when you get right down to analyzing it? Because streaming services exist. And one purpose of streaming services is to reveal to God's image bearers we have more time than we think we do. So in all seriousness, let 2023 not be a year you regress in devotion to the word and to the church of Christ, but a year of pressing into the wisdom and life of the word. Let it be a year of deeper growth in the scriptures. So I wonder... And you can even think about this in your mind as I pose the question. Do you have even a current plan or method for reading the scriptures? You should make a plan. Have you ever read the Bible in a year? Four chapters a day will do it with several days to spare. Writing out certain verses to maybe memorize from Colossians or something from Psalms. Memorizing Psalm 1. What a great idea. If you live in a household with other people, roommates or children or spouses, you might think about evenings together or before meals, reading scripture, thinking about a verse, praying together and talking about it. Maybe pick a gospel. Take the gospel of Mark. What if you read the gospel of Mark all the way through once a month for all 12 months? The deep acquaintance and joy we would have in one particular book of the Bible by immersing ourselves in it. Blessed is the man who is not passive with the Bible. You know what I recognize about the Psalm 1 man? This is a man who is actively engaged with the scriptures. He is not passive with the word of God. Because he knows that the world is full of suffocating falsehoods and the Bible is oxygen. That's what he knows. And I wonder if you know that and believe that. And in a culture permeated by poisoned wells and parched souls, I wonder if you realize that the scriptures are fresh water. The blessed man lingers over the word of God. He doesn't want to be too busy for the scriptures. This is the life of God in the word where he meets God and cherishes wisdom and grows. He tastes and he sees. Here's what Spurgeon says. 
The more you read the Bible, the more you meditate on it, the more you will be astonished with it. Spurgeon says, he who is just a casual reader of the Bible does not know the height, depth, length, and breadth of the meanings in its pages. Spurgeon is right. We are not interested in being casual, occasional, distracted readers of the Word. We know this is oxygen in a world of suffocating falsehoods. So why doesn't the man walk according to what the wicked say? Because of where his delight is. Why doesn't he stand on the way of sinners who oppose the Lord? Because of where his delight is. Why doesn't he sit with the scoffers? They have a chair. It's not like there's not room for him. Oh, it's because of where his delight is. The scripture exposes the futility of unrighteousness. And this man's delight is in the word of God and not the way of the wicked. We are all guided by what we most delight in. The blessed life of this man has a heart ordered by the scriptures. And I don't imagine that this blessed man wakes up every morning feeling bursting delight to come before the scriptures. He simply knows what his soul needs. So he refuses to be led by his wavering feelings. He wants to be directed in his soul by the truth and wisdom of God. This practice in verse 2 is what leads to the reality of verse 3. What's true now of this man, this blessed man? Oh, this man is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season. Now, what I love about the Psalms are there many pictures and metaphors to teach us. And when we imagine this tree firmly planted and beautifully fruit bearing, we ought to think to ourselves, I want to be described like this one. Who wouldn't want that? Because the opposite image or the other image used to contrast the righteous is chaff, blown away by the winds, and that's the wicked, who have no love for the Scripture, no desire to be ordered by the Word of God. Well, this man, this blessed man, is like a tree. And the reader's imagination sees the importance and incentive of pursuing the Lord in the Word. After all, what effect do we think it would have? Would we think following the Lord would be without effect? Could we imagine loving the scriptures? Would it really lead to anything significant? Oh, far from it. No, verse 3 is the reality that results. It's precisely the thing we should fervently pray for the Lord to produce in us. This tree is not away from nourishment. This is a tree planted by streams of water. Now, I think this is picturing the life of the man. His delight is in the word of God. Those are the streams. His life then is like a tree planted to be nourished by the scriptures, the streams of water and all of their nourishment going all the way down to the root enable this tree to be sustained. The life that delights in scripture is planted by streams of spiritual water. The tree yields fruit, doesn't it? It says it yields its fruit in its season. But then there's a surprise You notice the line, its leaf does not wither. Well, if that's true, then this is not a normal tree. Because we would expect that when a tree has the season of fruit bearing, and then it does it, you know, it bears its fruit in its season. Okay, that's a good tree. You still expect leaves to wither. I mean, listen, it's January. Look at the trees around us. Okay, there's a lot lot of withering leaves in the weeks leading up to today. Now, this tells us then 
that this is not to be pictured as a normal and literal tree. It's about the life of the man that is sustained day by day and season after season by the truth of the word of God. He has a life source that is not from within himself or dependent on some sort of circumstantial thing, but rather the word of God that is his soul's delight. One writer puts it this way, that in the middle of summer, grass might be brown as the sun beats on it and turns the land into a skillet. This man has roots that go below the surface to drink from these waters. In all that he does, he prospers. So the last part of the verse dealing with the way of the righteous here, which is verses 1 to 3. The last part of verse 3 talks about a fruitful life. Now we are immediately cautioned by different writers on Psalm 1 here. Where one writer puts it this way. The prosperity of the righteous doesn't extend an assurance of great wealth. But rather God's blessing on our words and works. In other words, we should not look at this language about prospering and say, okay, materially and in worldly ways, this is the promise and expectation. Psalm 1 is no health wealth gospel. This is instead promising us the powerful blessing of God by his spirit on the life of the one who delights in the word. And the fruit is left to the discretion, wisdom and sovereignty of the Lord. But nonetheless... The power is not in the tree itself. The power is where it is planted. It is planted by streams of water. Why does that detail matter? Because we're not just to be thinking about the tree. But what is nourishing it? What's nourishing the life of this man who is blessed? The living words of God. Now this language about the blessed man echoes earlier scripture. You might have even thought of the character Joshua from Joshua 1. In Joshua chapter 1, it tells us the book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, God says to Joshua. But you shall meditate on it day and night so that you be careful to do all that's written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous and have good success. Well, that sounds a lot like Psalm 1. And I think what we're reading in Psalm 1 is a way of saying, be like Joshua. God's words to Joshua were not just for Joshua. Live a life where your heart is submitted to and directed by the words of God, which are faithful and trustworthy, wise, good, and life-giving. If we believe those are the things true about the Scriptures, it will have an effect on our approach to them and our love for them. The language in Psalm 1 recalls more than Joshua. Go all the way to the beginning of the Bible. I did talk about how blessing is rooted ultimately in Genesis 1 where God pronounces fruitful, life-giving blessing. But Psalm 1 even reminds us of the opening chapters of Genesis. We read in Genesis 1 about the work of our majestic creator. He speaks and by his words brings life and blessing. That's what happens for the Psalm 1 man, isn't it? By the words of God, blessing and life come by the Spirit. We also see in Genesis 1, there's a day and night rhythm. Day and night, the working word of God in Genesis 1. There's even a divine pronouncement of blessing that guarantees fruitfulness in that same chapter. In Genesis 2, where does God plant the Garden of Eden? He plants the Garden of Eden and causes trees to grow beside streams of water. This man in Psalm 1 
It's like his soul is transplanted into the glories of the life he was made for to know and to walk with God. When we read Psalm 1-4, this man is like a tree by streams of water. And we're seeing a life depicted with Edenic language. God is pursuing his people after Genesis 3. After the fall, God has come for us. And we should believe and treasure what he says. The way of the wicked occupies the second half of the psalm in verses 4 to 6. While the righteous is depicted as this fruitful and Edenic life and uh, fruit-bearing figure, the wicked are not so. The opening description there about the wicked is to immediately contrast them as not a fruitful life. Not fruitful in the way that matters. Jesus is common to answer, or to ask rather, pointed questions to his listeners. One of the most important questions he asks in Mark chapter 8 is a question about ultimacy. What would it gain a man if he gained the whole world and lost his soul? His profit or his ultimate gain would be for nothing. This is that kind of language. The wicked are not so. You might find the unrighteous doing various things in life that seem to be successful or prosperous. That's not what this verse is talking about. He's not talking about the operations of a sinful world under the common grace of God that even sends rain and sunshine on the unrighteous. We're talking here about the fruitfulness and the life that is truly life that the one who knows God has and the wicked lack it. The wicked are not so. What are they like? Well, they're not like a tree. They're not depicted as any kind of fruit-bearing plant. They are given an image that is so disturbing when you begin to think about it that it ought to arrest the hearts of the reader. They are like chaff that the wind drives away. Now, I don't know if you have had to thresh any wheat lately, but let me just tell you, this is an agricultural image. And uh, I can't remember the last time I had to thresh wheat. So what I want to tell you is at harvest time, they would take the, threshing the wheat to the threshing floor and with the winnowing fork, casting the wheat into the air and upon the floor so that in that process of harvesting wheat and winnowing the returns, the chaff, the, the external husks and dust of the plants would be driven away by the wind. And what remained and what was gathered up afterward would be used and enjoyed and baked and made into flour and all the rest. The wicked are like chaff. There seems to be a lack of true substance. Easily separated. Meant to be cast away. They are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment. Nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. I think we should understand verse 5 to be an implication he's drawing. If the wicked are like chaff in verse 4, then we can conclude something. He, he tips his hand there with the word therefore, doesn't he? So he's drawing a conclusion based on the casting away of the wicked like chaff driven by wind. In verse 5, there's a coming judgment where all will stand before God. And to stand before God and to remain before God is to be in a position of vindication and welcome and life with God. But it says here, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, which means they are condemned by God, not vindicated or welcomed before him. 
And I think we understand it this way because the parallel phrase, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous, pictures sinners and the righteous coming before God and the righteous remaining in life with God, but the wicked condemned. This is a picture in verses 4 and 5 of the judgment of the wicked. That's what we see. The blessing of the righteous as we seek the Lord in this life, delight in his word, want our souls ordered and directed by the word of God. Where does that path end? In the everlasting welcome of God in new creation. Life everlasting with him. Not so for the wicked. Their future is judgment. They shall not stand with the righteous in that congregation. Or rather, they are rightly, justly condemned. They will not know God's blessing. They will have no common grace. God will give them what they want. And they do not want God. They do not want His truth. They do not love what is wise. So they will reap what they have sown. Verse 5 is an example about how the truth about the future should shape the way we think about the present These righteous will also reap. They will experience their everlasting life with God in glory. And it far exceeds our ability to conceive the weight and wonder of what awaits the people of God. The question is then given the future for God's people, what is the present like for us? Are we seeking to be those trees planted by streams of water in this life? Nourished by the word of God, loving the truth of God, wanting to honor and glorify Christ, that he would be our treasure. In verse 6, he closes this psalm by explaining why verse 5 is the way it is. In verse 5, the wicked won't stand and the sinners not in the congregation of the righteous. Why? Because, or for, the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish The way, the word way there seems to represent the people who are on it. Let's take that understanding and reread verse 6. The Lord knows the way of the righteous. In other words, he knows those who are on it. He knows the occupants on the narrow way. Those who love him and delight in his word. He knows them. But the way of the wicked will perish. What does that mean? Those on the wicked way. The word way here represents... The respective groups upon those paths. So the way of the righteous represents those who know God. And God knows those who know him. He knows the way of the wicked. In fact, God's knowledge of his people is characterized by his loving, shepherding, steadfast, unfailing love. Nothing like that in all the universe. You can't put a price on it. And it's not something we earn. And it's not something we will lose. It is the gracious gift of God that day by day sustains us. Our future, our eternal life with God will be to eternally receive from God His steadfast love moment by moment. That is the glorious future for the people of God. And we cannot conceive of such wonder. The Lord knows the way of the righteous. So why will the congregation of the righteous stand? Why will those be those welcomed and vindicated before God? Because in verse 6, God knows who are His. But in verse 5, the wicked will not stand because in verse 6, the way of the wicked will perish. So there is judgment. The wicked do not know the steadfast love and covenant faithfulness of the Lord. 
They refuse his wisdom. They ignore his word. They have rejected the Lord Jesus Christ. The future of the wicked is the outworking of all of their unrighteousness and sin. It is judgment. The good news for sinners is that while none of us have ever perfectly delighted in the law of God and have always refused the counsel of the wicked in the way of sinners in the seat of scoffers, there is one who has gone before us who is the perfect blessed man and his name is Jesus. He most truly and most fully embodies the blessed man of Psalm 1. Understanding Psalm 1 in light of the person and work of Jesus Christ has been an interpretive move rooted in church history. You find this among the reformers. You find this as early as the church fathers. Augustine said in the 400s, the blessed man of Psalm 1 is the Lord Jesus Christ. Everything he did prospered. All of his words were righteous. And all that he produced affected salvation for all who were in him. It's interesting to look at even the teachings of the Lord Jesus. And my mind thinks of the Sermon on the Mount. In the Sermon on the Mount, he begins in Matthew 5 with the word blessed. And he ends the Sermon on the Mount with a warning about the judgment upon the wicked. And the separation from the righteous and the wicked. The imagery he uses at the end of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 7 are about builders and foundations. And the the wise man, Jesus says, hears my words. So not only is Jesus portraying himself to be a teacher who is guiding people in the ways that are right. He is teaching people as the one who himself gives the life they need. Who has the wisdom they must trust. And he says, you hear my words and you do them. You're like a wise man who builds his house on the rock. But the fool hears and doesn't do. Their counsel that they take, they walk according to the counsel of the wicked. They stand in the way of sinners. They sit in the seat of scoffers. But they're still building their life. But what's going to happen in the future? When the judgment of God comes, the house will not stand. The wicked will perish. The wicked are like chaff blown away. All of these images teach the same idea. Different metaphors, same truth at the core, and it comes down to what shall we do now with the Lord Jesus Christ, that he might be our refuge and our Savior and King, the one who has come to redeem sinners. I think what Psalm 1 is calling us to is not only to delight in the words of God, but to follow the Lord Jesus Christ in 2023 with our whole heart. Let's stand together as we pray.